This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, November 21st, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. We're happy you're with us today. I'm Matthew Moore. On today's show, we'll learn more about how the VA in Fayetteville is providing counseling to vets experiencing intimate partner violence. We'll also learn more about Susan McDougall, one of the central figures in the Whitewater investigation in Arkansas in the 1990s. But we start by learning more about OSHA and its work in Arkansas. There are about 1.3 million employees in Arkansas. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports there are laws and two departments that oversee the safety and health of private and public sector employees to navigate if people in the workspace have questions, complaints, or concerns. In lounges, office kitchens, and other common workspace areas, employees might notice a few posters on the walls. These word-filled notices can be crammed with information about job safety and health and about the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. Not only are employers required to post OSHA posters, they must maintain and put them in an easily visible place. One of the reasons for this is so the information is available to employees. Mike Watson, the Arkansas Health and Safety Program Manager, says there are some mix-ups when individuals have complaints or questions, starting with who to contact. They could call us, they will call us, and they will say, Uh, I have an unsafe work condition. I'm concerned about such and such at my work. Well, the first thing we do is we establish jurisdiction. There are two departments in Arkansas. For private sector employees, such as people who work for companies, there is OSHA. And for those who work in the public sector, like at a public university or municipality, there is the Arkansas Occupational Safety and Health, or AOSH. The confusion starts from, one, lack of education about OSHA. People say OSHA and they think, you know, well, that's the safety people that come in and write fines to folks. Watson says although this is true, before handling cases, they make sure people are in the right place to have their problem addressed. Watson says deciding who had jurisdiction on private or public sector employees between the departments began after an event in 1997. There was an incident that involved an employer, a private sector employer, and some public sector workers in Helena, West Helena, uh, with the chemical plant explosion, and everyone showed up. In other words, the U.S. Department of Labor, OSHA, showed up, the Arkansas Department of Labor, AOSH, which is Arkansas Occupational Safety and Health, showed up, Uh, DEA, FBI, everybody in the world showed up over there to, and nobody really really was really sure who was in charge. It was before we had, you know, the NEMS, the National Incident Management System in place. Three firefighters died and 17 more required medical attention from the fire and following explosion in Unit 2 of the Bartlow Packaging Incorporated facility, according to the Environmental Protection Agency's and OSHA's Joint Accident Investigation Report. The department looks after different employees, but they use the same set of codes, primarily the Code of Federal Regulations, 1910 for general industry and 1926 for construction. There are also other national consensus codes. 
If an individual is a private sector employer with questions, they go to Clark Thomas's office. Thomas is the OSHA consultation project manager and has been at the Arkansas Department of Labor and Licensing for about 52 years. Thomas said he watched the program grow and form safety associations and facilitate connections throughout the state. Helping to elevate people's level of awareness and making them aware that OSHA is not an enemy, but we are friend, trying to eliminate uh, injuries and illnesses of employees and benefit the employers. Uh, because once you can reduce workers' comp, then obviously employers are benefiting. And so we reduce human suffering. So that, that's what this is all about. As a consultant, Thomas goes into spaces at the invitation of an employer. He says in the consultant program, they carry out OSHA regulations and make recommendations, but do not work directly with employees. If workers need to file a complaint or concern, they will go to OSHA compliance. We operate with whoever called us, whether it's a grain operation, woodworking operation, just a regular manufacturing company. We do work with a dentist's office, and we have in the past worked um, quite a bit with nursing homes. So it just depends on who we invite us in. The departments cover thousands of employees in Arkansas, but some workers are their employer's responsibility. Okay, let's say that I'm working for you and I'm contracted. You contract me to come in and work for you, and I bring my employees. Then those employees become my responsibility. And OSHA would cover those, but I would be responsible for their safety and health because they actually work for me. For Ozarks at Large in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 1 at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. The Veterans Health Care System of the Ozarks provides confidential and comprehensive counseling to veterans experiencing intimate partner violence. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Intimate Partner Violence Assistance Program is an evidence-based program for veterans, their families, and VA employees. Andrea Prudel leads the program at Veterans Health Care System of the Ozarks, which operates a hospital campus in Fayetteville, along with seven outpatient clinics in the tri-state region. She and colleagues, she says, use specific language while deploying the program. So we don't use batterer, we don't use survivor, we don't use, um, you know, victim. We use those who have experienced intimate partner violence versus and those who've used intimate partner violence. The definition, um, just to be clear, is um, intimate partner violence is any violent behavior including but not limited to physical or sexual violence, stalking and psychological aggression, including coercive acts by a current or former intimate partner that occurs on a continuum of frequency and severity, which ranges from one episode that might or might not have a lasting impact to chronic and severe episodes over a period of years. And it can occur in heterosexual or same-sex relationship and does not require sexual intimacy or cohabitation. Domestic violence occurs between a parent and a child, siblings, and even roommates. Intimate partner violence occurs between romantic partners who may or may not be living together in the same household. Over a dozen signs indicate intimate partner violence, Prudel says. 
It's isolation and a lack of social support, financial control or economic abuse. Um, There's unexplained injuries, verbal abuse, um, pressure veterans to use alcohol or drugs, um, intimidation and talking down to veterans, demeaning or insulting in public, showing extreme jealousy or possessiveness, manipulation and control, and gaslighting. A lot of people get confused with what that term means. And it's a form of psychological manipulation in which the abuser attempts to encourage self doubt and confusion in their victims' minds. So those that use gaslighting tactic works to distort reality and forcing them to question their own judgment or intuition. So for example, you're just being crazy and delusional with your thinking. I don't hurt you. You hurt me. Can't you see what you've done to this family? Veterans are more likely to experience intimate partner violence compared to civilian counterparts throughout their lifetime, she says. Two and a half out of every five men and two out of every four women will experience IPV or intimate partner violence throughout their lifetime. So you're asking why. Um, Sometimes this can be due to several comorbidities such as combat trauma, PTSD, and something we um, call ACEs, which is um, adverse childhood experiences, along along with the military culture. So meaning they are rewired or reprogrammed when you join part of the the military and become a team which is structured to fight and defend. The military, regardless of the branch you serve, is designed the same way with the chain of command that everyone answers to and gets directions from, no questions asked. So there's this old motto, you know, do not ask the question why, but to do or die. So with this mindset, veterans are emotionally desensitized in order to fight at their duty stations or in their units and platoons, and they have to be in order to survive extreme harsh environments. Conversely, Predal says the military offers no training on how to return to civilian life. You know, they get their discharge paperwork, their packets, and, you know, they go home to their families. Um, Furthermore, if a veteran takes their military training, plus the PTSD and their poor interpersonal relationship skills, which may be due to moral injury or a lack of trust, depression, anxiety, that can set the stage for failure to succeed with integration back into civilian life. Veterans with pre-existing trauma, including adverse childhood experience, she says, are at higher risk for intimate partner violence. The VA's program, initiated a decade ago, is structured to provide comprehensive help to such individuals. So it started back in 2013. Um, They went ahead, the VA decided to have a a task force. Um, And then um, throughout several years, there was the implementation of this program. Um, And in 2019, there was a directive that came out that you know, outlined what we were going to do. Um, so the IPV um, program here at the VA follows several, like four different guiding principles. So we're veteran centric. We treat veterans with their partners with dignity and respect. That person first, using person first language to reduce that stigma and focusing on behavior um, to be changed, um, which is what we talked about, cultivating a different um, narrative. And then we work with veterans who use intimate partner violence. We work with veterans who um, experience intimate partner violence. And we recognize that individuals may either use both you know, experience, both um, IPV, trauma-informed and then recovery-oriented. So we operate from that public health model of encouraging awareness and prevention, education, and intervention to mitigate that risk of IPV. 
Preddle is a veteran, having served in the U.S. Navy for eight years and is a licensed clinical social worker for 17 years as Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks Intimate Partner Violence Program Coordinator, she engages or oversees emergency crisis stabilization procedures, individual counseling, and couples counseling. She also collaborates with the Veterans Justice Outreach Program Coordinator, who assists veterans caught up in the criminal justice system. All enrolled veterans are required, she says, to undergo annual screenings for intimate partner violence. The screening consists of um, seven questions, eight questions. So there's the first five, um, and it's the initial screening. And then if they screen positive, then it goes into a secondary screening. Um, so I train staff about that and make sure that our veterans are getting screened. If they do, I get a consult, and then we do an assessment and a safety plan. So safety plans are if you're going to stay or if you're going to leave. Um, so because, you know. It's their choice, ultimately, but I'm just here to make sure I give them guidance and support and the resources that they need. If willing, veterans receive mental health care as well as intimate partner violence treatment to facilitate recovery. The VA also screens veterans for suicide risk. There's a correlation and intersectionality between homicide, suicide, you know, along with homelessness. The screenings, intervention, and treatment, she says, are saving lives. So a lot of veterans, unfortunately, have estranged relationships um, with family. Some of them feel very isolated when they come back, you know, from the military because there's that sense of camaraderie um, that you don't always have when you come back um, into the civilian life. So, you know, it's just making sure we're wrapping full services around both of our veterans, caregivers, spouses, partners, their families, because the number one protective factor for our veterans, and really anybody is having supportive, healthy relationships. To obtain services available at the main hospital campus and seven community-based outpatient clinics, veterans must be enrolled in VA benefits. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Just ahead on Ozarks at Large, we continue our trip through the whitewater maze of the 1990s with archives from the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. But when they take you in a grand jury, you have no attorney. They ask you the same questions over and over until you slip up on one and maybe answer it a little differently. Susan McDougall is the subject of this week's Pryor Center profile that's just ahead on today's Ozarks at Large. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, December 10th, with two performances of its annual Christmas concert at Walton Arts Center. Performing a mix of holiday favorites under the baton of maestro Paul Haas, musicians will also be joined on stage by the Sona Singers and other guests. Tickets at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org. Arkansas lawmakers will return to the state capitol early next year for a general session of the state legislature. After a failed attempt to pass teacher pay raises this year, education is expected to be a key focus of new legislation. Janelle Fulmer, chair of the Republican Party of Arkansas, says lawmakers will likely call for expanding education voucher programs and to reassess funding priorities for schools. Our legislature has a better handle on where those monies specifically are going for public education, that there is perhaps not always the best use of funds. Um, I think a lot of those funds need to be going to teacher pay instead of a lot of the other avenues where they might be used. Very hopeful that um, whether they cut funding or not, that the money is used more appropriately. 
State Democratic Party Chair Grant Tenniel says Arkansas schools are underfunded, leading to poor outcomes for students. It's time for Arkansas to invest in the schools in a way that will produce the results that we want, which is more kids graduating, more kids going on to some form of education or training after high school. doesn't have to be college. But without continued investment in our teachers, in curriculum, in technology, we're going to continue to spin our wheels. Daniel says state Republican proposals to limit the number of Democratic lawmakers who can serve on committees will only make the legislature less diverse. Lawmakers will begin the next session on January 9th of next year. The Razorback soccer team is in the NCAA Elite Eight for the second straight year. Last night in Fayetteville, Arkansas defeated Memphis on penalty kicks to advance to the national quarterfinals. The Razorbacks will meet the number one seed Florida State in Tallahassee Saturday afternoon at 4. And the Arkansas cross-country season is over after this weekend's NCAA championship in Stillwater. The women finished 21st and the men finished 23rd. I've told them from the beginning that I never saw Bill or Hillary Clinton do anything illegal. If you are a regular connoisseur of the Prior Center profiles that we have on every Monday Ozarks at Large, you'll maybe realize that that is sort of a counterstatement to what we started with last week. Right, Randy Dixon with the Prior Center? It's directly opposite. Uh, last week we talked about Jim McDougal. Uh, he was a financier, land developer, who ended up going to prison because of the Whitewater investigation. Hopefully uh, everyone's familiar with that. It dominated the news in the 90s. It involved Bill and Hillary Clinton, special prosecutor Kenneth Starr. Uh, these are the names that uh, were were caught up in all this, and the, the main figures – uh, it was a couple named Jim and Susan McDougal. Last week, we profiled Jim McDougal, who had dabbled in politics over the years. Um, he worked for Senator Fulbright. Right. He worked for Governor Bill Clinton. He ran for Congress uh, unsuccessfully, uh, and he ended up going to prison for fraud. And dying of, there. And dying there, yes. And we we profiled him last week. Um, KATV uh, did the final interview with him, the last interview before he died in prison. Well, this week, uh, we are going to profile his ex-wife. Um, and what's different about the two, he cooperated, and many believe he lied just to get his sentence reduced and said what the special prosecutor wanted him to say, and Susan McDougal refused. So um, this all stems to that land development, residential land development on the White River um, that failed. The Clintons were investors. So I think we're kind of caught up there. But the McDougals were really movers and shakers mm -hmm. back in the 70s and 80s. They ran in all those circles um, with the rich and powerful in Arkansas. Um, like I said, a very good friend uh, of the McDougals were the Clintons. So um, Susan was actually better known uh, than Jim because she was kind of like the face of 
all of their developments. And in the archives, I found a commercial. And I will never forget this commercial. And whenever the networks would call us um, about footage, I always had to tell them about this commercial because it's Susan McDougal. She's on horseback, and she's walking through the woods and being interviewed by the announcer of the interview, and they're talking about one of the land developments, and this was actually a successful one. Unlike Whitewater, this one was called Maple Creek Farms. Susan, tell me about Maple Creek Farms. This development is totally different from almost everything else in Arkansas because it's so affordable. It's always been the dream of most Americans to know the pride of ownership and the solid feeling of your own land under your feet. That's Susan McDougall in a commercial for Maple Creek Farms. Where was Ma Maple Creek Farms? Do you remember? It was in South Arkansas, okay. I believe. Because Whitewater is in North Central Arkansas. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it obviously was not successful like Maple Creek Farms. But, you know, it was, it was called Whitewater. Um, there were allegations of, of fraud, which is what caused the whole investigation um, by Prosecutor Kenneth Starr. Um, it was a wide-reaching probe that we'll get into, oh, later, much later on, that, that went way, oh. way beyond Whitewater. And Suffice to it, say, almost anything that you associate with the Clintons had a connection or had the germination in this Whitewater investigation. Right. Kenneth Starr just kept expanding it well, further the, and the, further. The net yes. kept widening, and yeah. it kept catching people in it. Webb Hubble, Webb Hubble had right. nothing to do with Whitewater, but he was convicted of overcharging clients and the Rose Law Firm. Governor Jim Guy Tucker. Jim Guy Tucker yeah. had to resign. Um, he was convicted of loan fraud. So... Um, it, it was this wide-ranging investigation that Susan McDougal decided she was not going to participate in, and she, she paid a huge price, yeah. which we'll get into here. So um, because she wouldn't talk, she faced an undetermined amount of time in jail because of contempt of court. Um, they told her this was going to happen. She stuck to her guns, and here is an interview that she did before all of this actually happened to her. Um, this is with ABC's Diane Sawyer. It is tempting every time they put the carrot before my eyes. It's very tempting. It's tempting when I see my mother crying, when I see my family hurting. And if you think that I would do this to people I love or to myself for some reason that is less than noble, you're wrong. There's only one reason that I don't go in and tell them what they want to hear, and it's because I would not ruin people's lives. And if you start talking, will you ruin people's lives? I'm not in control of that. Could you bear prison for two years? Could you just bear no. it? No. I'm not a strong person. So that's uh, Diane Sawyer interviewing Susan McDougal, and she's going to stick to her guns. Right. And right there at the end, she said, I'm not a strong person. Yeah. Well, somehow she ended up being incredibly strong. Uh, she ended up spending 21 months in jail 
on that contempt of court charge. So let's go back to Jim. Okay. Um, KTV was the last person or the last television station to interview her ex-husband, Jim, in prison. Uh, Joan Early and I went down uh, and interviewed her or interviewed him just a few months before he died. And uh, Joan asked him about uh, Susan's predicament, and this is what he said. She could let herself out of jail tomorrow if she would answer one question. Did William Jefferson Clinton testify truthfully at your trial? She's refusing to answer that question, therefore she's in contempt. All she has to do is answer that. All she has to do is quit covering up for Bill Clinton and she'll get out of jail. That's Jim McDougal, who was the focus of last week's Prior Center Profile. This week we're really paying attention to his ex-wife, Susan McDougal. That's right. Um, last week when we were uh, profiling Jim McDougal, we talked to our University of Arkansas communications professor, Steve Smith, who was on the Clinton staff and was also involved in the investigation. He was he was a target. Mm-hmm. And they pulled some of the same tactics on him that they did on Susan. He even said that they went to the extent of writing a script for him to read to the grand jury that was full of lies. He refused to do it. Um, he was charged was pardoned uh, by the president before he left office. Here's what Steve had to say about the difference between Susan and Jim. I have a lot of respect for her. Yeah, I do. Um, Jim was was sick, and uh, Starr took advantage of him. And, and uh, he just started making up, you know, whatever Starr wanted him to say, he was willing to say it. And uh, Susan wouldn't do that. That's Steve Smith. And I want to just pause for a moment to let you know that he there is a new book out called States Women, A Centennial History of Arkansas Women Legislators, 1922-2022, that uh, he wrote along with Lindsay. Yes, and they will be at the Pryor Center uh, for a book signing. And we're going to have a conversation with them on Ozarks at Large prior to that prior book session. That's right. So that'll, that's, that's some big news coming yes. up that you'll be able to uh, attend at the Pryor Center, and um, it's going to be very interesting, and you can get a copy of the book. That's right. Now, going back to what we're talking about with Susan McDougall. Right. So now she's going to be going to jail for contempt. And I, can you imagine how frightening that would be? I, honestly, I cannot. I mean, this is a person who's never been in trouble with the law. According to her, all she's wanting to do is tell the truth. Right. They are not going to buy that. They aren't going to allow her to do that. And she's facing, I mean, how would you like to get up and say, well, I'm going to jail today and I have no idea when I'm getting out. She did make an appearance on Larry King Live and talked about going before the grand jury. This is after she had gone um, and refused to talk. So here's this interview uh, with Larry King, and the other voice you'll hear, she was with her attorney, uh, Mark Garrigus. But when they take you in a grand jury, you have no attorney. They ask you the same questions over and over until you slip up on one and maybe answer it a little differently. Why not or try they, that rather than this? Or they leak something that is totally wrong. When I went into the grand jury before, they came out, and you know what they said? She refused to answer whether or not Bill Clinton was uh, telling the truth in his deposition. Well, that was totally false. 
I refused to answer any question. But do you see what they said? But she refused to tell us. But yes. for your own safety, since that was a leak and it was wrong, yes. whoever oversees the grand jury, the judge and the like, is going to dismiss. He's the judge, we assume, is not reading leaks. So the judge will only deal with the facts. And as long as you tell the truth, so you get a bad leak or for a week a story is wrong, you'll be out of here. No, the problem is the judge doesn't make the decision. The grand jury, there's a judge who supervises the grand jury, but the grand jury is really the tool of the prosecutor. Okay. Ken Starr doesn't want to see her in jail, does he? Well, I mean, what Ken does he Star, get out of that? This is this is Ken Starr's worst nightmare. Is that somebody has stood up? I mean, she she when she first went in, she said she was going to be the last person standing, and you saw where, uh, uh, as of right now, when David Hale walked out last week, she is the last person standing. Yeah. Jim Guy Tucker pled uh, within the last couple of days. She is the last person standing. And just in case you're not old enough or you weren't paying close attention to politics in the '90s, we've shown you just how big a story this was. Diane Sawyer, Larry King. This was everywhere. Now, well, Mark Garrigus, her attorney, yes. was famous uh, in in his own right. I mean, he would rank up there with Dershowitz, and he was a uh, celebrity, not a lawyer necessarily for celebrities, but he was well celebrated because he was a famous lawyer. Well, and he did have a lot. Well, Winona Ryder. Oh, that's right. Uh, for her shoplifting, right? Um, Michael Jackson. Mm. He represented mm -hmm. him in the molestation cases. Right. He even represented Roger Clinton, Bill Clinton's brother, on some alcohol-related cases. So that. he was kind of—I guess you'd call him attorney to the famous, right? So that was him talking there with her, and he was at her side throughout this entire ordeal. Over over this period of, of months and months, so I caught up with Susan. I, I talked to her yeah. last week, and um, she wanted to to do a Zoom call, and uh, it was nice to see her. And, and I'll I tell you, she looks exactly like she did hmm. back in the nineties, um, and she's now director of pastoral care and a grief counselor at UAMS wow. down in Little Rock. Yeah. So I talked to her about, you know, her personal struggles and dealing with Kenneth Starr and his staff because she was bombarded by, you know, not necessarily Kenneth Starr directly, but, you know, he, he had a huge staff uh, and spent an incredible amount of money, millions of dollars on this investigation. But... You know, we were talking about what would you do the morning that you're going to jail. Right, or right. she talked to me about the night before. They had given me a deal to um, incriminate the Clintons, even though I had no information to incriminate them. They had been giving Jim McDougall the information. They had been feeding the information to him to incriminate the Clintons. I had none, but I knew that they would probably give it to me. But there was no way after living with my parents and my family that I was going to be able to lie about that and just feel okay about it and go on. So uh, we met as a family the night before I surrendered. I said, this is what I have to do. And my dad said he had his whole army hat on. And I remember he took it off and he said, we're with you. We're behind you. And my mom said, is there no other way? Is there no other way? than for you to go to jail. And I said, Mom, I don't think so. I think I'd have to lie about the Clintons to stay out of jail. And my family all just surrounded me and hugged me and said, we're with you. And that was it. And Susan McDougall from a conversation that she had with you, Randy, just last week.
That's right. That's right. And that's that's when she turned herself in. We talked a lot about when she was in jail, and she actually had some positive things to say about it, which which really surprised me. But it wasn't about the authorities. Right. It was about the people that she was actually incarcerated with. The the other inmates, they they took her in. She actually said when she first showed up at the Pulaski County Jail when she turned herself in, she went into the women's unit and they all said, ah, we've been watching you on TV. We were expecting you to be here. Mm. And they were incredibly nice to her. And this kept happening because they moved her all over the country. And this is something I had never heard of. It's called diesel therapy. What does that refer to? Well, they move you from jail to jail. All over the country. I mean, she was in Arkansas. She was in California. She was she was moved all over the place. And I asked her. I said, well, "What? Other than harassment, why did they do that? Did they tell you?" And she said, "No, they never told me anything." All of a sudden, I would be. Well, she's going to explain okay. a little bit of this. And she was in seven different facilities. Uh, over that period of time, and here's where she describes it. It sounds awful. Shackled and handcuffed and not eating all day, not going to the bathroom, in a bus. One time I was in a jet going somewhere. Um, I mean, it, it just was the hardest thing. And you lose everything. You lose the books that you, you gathered up, you know, in your little corner. You lose socks. You lose underwear that your family has sent you. And you're back to nothing. And you're in a new facility, and it takes a month to get the telephone approved for your family to call. And in that month, they have no idea where you are. Why isn't she calling us? Why isn't she getting in touch with us? So finally, they called the Faulkner County Jail, and they said, we don't know where she's going to, but they came and got her. And that just happened over and over and over again. This is where things change. In June of 98, this big surprise came when federal judge George Howard in Little mm-hmm. Rock released Susan because of medical reasons, for you know, health reasons. And the judge also reduced her whitewater fraud conviction. She had been convicted like her, her ex-husband, Jim. But um, she, uh, it was reduced to time served for that uh, contempt conviction. So suddenly, she's free. Wow. I had no idea it was about to happen. And so this is from the archive. She emerges from the courthouse, still in the, the orange jumpsuit that she had been wearing for almost two years. Right, because if you know you're getting out, there can be plans made for you to have you know, clothes. Yeah, but, but like she said, every time they moved her, right. she lost everything right. she had. So she comes out, of course, with Garrigus in front of the courthouse in her orange, but without the shackles. We had more video of her trying to walk with shackles on her hands and feet. Mm. Like, I mean, she is a petite woman. Mm-hmm. Like, she's not going to escape or be some sort of criminal. But they always had her in shackles, and this was the one time in so many months that she had not been, and and this is the reaction outside the courthouse. 
I can't say. I, I don't know. I, it just hasn't registered yet. I don't know. First thing she's going to do is I'm going to take her someplace. I'm going to get her some clothes. Okay. Uh, the second, the, the second thing I, um, I think we're going to do is we're going to clean actually. Yeah. It's the first time she's been walking around in these without shackles outside. So that's a uh, kind of a memorable occasion. Um, we understand you've got a birthday in two days. Yes. My, I had my birthday last time in, so it'll be a little different. I'll be with my mom and dad this time. Let's get back to the conversation you had, had with her via Zoom last week. And she was very gracious. It was it was great to talk to her because I, I hadn't seen her in years and years. And she wanted to do the Zoom so we could mm -hmm. see each other, which I thought was really nice. Well, this, this last cut we're going to hear is, is quite something. Yeah, because we ta also talked uh, about – this experience and how it led her on the path that, sh that she's on now, because it's it's quite different from being a land developer to being a pastor and a grief counselor. And she's very happy with with what she's doing. But you know, to say that that what happened to her was a life changing experience <laughs> would be a gross gross understatement. But I, I loved the way she sort of summed up her life and, and what this did to her. It changed everything about me. It changed everything. It made me grateful. It made me love um, the people that were going through, like Steve Smith, people like that who were suffering because of Whitewater and had done nothing wrong. Um, that powerful money and government just, you know, stomping on everybody. And it made me have a, a larger heart toward people who are in jail and have committed crimes and they're people too. They're people just like us who really never had a chance. And I think I wouldn't change a day of it. I really don't think I would change a day of it. Even the hard times in solitary confinement made me more, more generous and more open to people than I ever was before. Thank you for uh, conducting that conversation and, and, and for bringing this to us, but we're not done. Oh, but wait, there's more, <laughs> yeah. as they say. Um, there were more, after all of this, there were more legal problems for Susan. Uh, Jim's in jail, but Susan faces something else, and guess what? We'll pick that up next week. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. You can learn more about this and so much other Arkansas history by just searching for the Pryor Center in your web engine. I'll be here next week. I will, too. Okay. Have, a, have a good Thanksgiving. You, too. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering the nationally recognized Hendricks Odyssey Program, which ensures students complete three or more hands-on learning experiences from internships and undergraduate research to service opportunities and study abroad programs. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. Vaudeville, back on stage for one weekend in Eureka Springs, a fundraiser for Main Stage, a nonprofit in Eureka designed to use art as a connector for different generations of residents and visitors of the town, will feature several acts in three different shows. Main Stage includes a 125-seat theater and a black box theater. It's that black box stage that will have three days of vaudeville-inspired entertainment, Friday and Saturday nights, and Sunday afternoon. Lorna Trigg, the producer of the show, says we'll see almost every kind of entertainer this weekend, including a magician who is perfect 
for this production. His whole thing is studying the the magicians from the vaudeville from the 1920s and 30s period. Um, so he, he's very just wonderful, wonderful music, magician. We're going to see dancers. We're going to see uh, hula hoopers. We're going to see comedians. Trigg says the main stage staff is going all out, including a big celebration Friday evening. So we have a black tie event on Friday, and um, so we'll be calling a black black tie gala. I'm bringing in a chef from New York who's going to be doing our hors d'oeuvres. We're really doing it up. Um, we're going to have some very special events happening in the foyer, pre-show. We're going to have some events happening outside, so we're going to have a little bit of a circusy vaudeville effect and we're calling it black tie for the opening night because we're hoping people and i'm sure they will in eureka or people that are visiting come in costume friday night's gala includes more than two hours of pre-show activity the doors of the foyer will open at five because we have all the pre-show events going on um the theater doors will open at seven we have a house band we have a live house band we're going to be all playing all 1920s sort of ragtime type music. Um, show will start at 7.30. Saturday night, Main Stage is collaborating with the Grand Central Hotel for a pre-show dinner. Triggs has reservations for the Saturday night dinner and the Saturday night show need to be made through separate reservations. You buy your dinner tickets and reservations through the Grand Central, but the idea there is the Grand Central is literally the, the block up from Main Stage. So the idea there is to go to dinner and walk down to the theater. Um, so the same type of thing is get into, you know, going to dinner at about five, get to the theater, you know, six thirty, uh, do some of the, you know, partake in some of the wonderful uh, entertainment that we're going to have in the foyer. Well, I mean, Saturday is a matinee, the two o'clock matinee. The Vaudeville show for main stage in Eureka Springs is Friday night and Saturday night, and the Sunday afternoon matinee begins at two. All shows take place at main stage at 67 North Main Street in downtown Eureka. Ticket prices range from 12 to $15. Hi, this is Lee Wood, KUAF's general manager. Every day of the year, but especially on Thanksgiving, I'm grateful for the incredible people who make public radio in our corner of the world possible. Hi, my name is Paul, your host for the Generic Blue Show, which airs every Friday night at 9 o'clock. G'day folks, Western Red here, host of If That Ain't Country. Now heard every Saturday night on KUAF. It's the Community Spotlight on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman, joined by Ellen Carroll over the phone. Good Tuesday. This is Ozarks at Large for November 15th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks for being with us. I'm Robert Ginsburg. This week on Shades of Jazz. This is KUAF's The Lunch Hour. I'm Jasper Logan. And again, thank you guys for coming out. From the morning newscast to the incredible reporting on Ozarks at Large, to our fundraisers and lunch hours, music programs, and community spotlights, everyone at KUAF works hard to serve the community we love, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. From all of us at KUAF, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Tomorrow on Ozark, Saladin Ahmed was this year's speaker on the University of Arkansas campus as a guest of the UA's Scholars at Risk Committee. Even what we perceive as human nature is a product of 
history of that history, right? And if that is the case, then we could also undo it. A conversation about philosophy and trying to make the world better. Plus, we prepare for Thanksgiving with wild turkeys. Well, a conversation about turkeys anyway. There's obviously just aesthetic value for, for turkeys on the landscape. I mean, there some people might might not think that they're the prettiest bird out there, but, you know, I, I think they're relatively pretty bird. They've got a lot of great plumage, and, you know, so there's a lot of opportunity for folks just to, to be seeing those birds out on the landscape and hopefully see, see them a little bit more often. So, you know, if they just enjoy the outdoors and enjoy seeing wildlife, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll be seeing a few more birds running around in the next few years. Those stories and much more on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 and when your schedule allows by using the Ozarks at Large podcast. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Songs. Saxophonist John Marshall Greer was born November 21, 1923, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, to Harry and Betty Greer. He attended Langston High, named for Reconstruction-era Virginia Congressman John Mercer Langston. In an era of U.S. school segregation, all-black Langston was known for excellent instructors, high-achieving students, and strong academic and extracurricular programs, including its music. A large child, Greer became known as Big John, billed at gigs as 240 pounds of solid jive. From his teens, Greer played Hot Springs area nightclubs filled with visitors from across the country. Tourists came to enjoy therapeutic baths from the local Hot Springs, but also to soak up the area's ample nightlife, which included not just music, but gambling and prostitution. Greer met upperclassman Henry Glover at Langston. Greer played sax, and Glover played trumpet. Glover became the most famous musical Langstonian, a sought-after producer, arranger, and writer of such hits as Drown in My Own Tears. And Glover became the prime mover behind John Greer's own musical career. Now just because you're pretty and you think you're mighty wise. After graduation, Henry Glover invited Greer to come to Huntsville, Alabama, where Glover attended Alabama A&M. He helped facilitate Greer's gig in the college's official band, the A&M Collegians. But a few years later, it was a much bigger deal when Glover recommended Greer to join on tenor sax in another Alabama-connected band he was in, the nationally known Lucky Millinder Band. Anniston, Alabama native Lucky Millinder was one of the country's top band leaders. Unlike in most bands, members were encouraged to record solo. Millinder didn't play an instrument and rarely sang, so his band often launched breakout talent. Rosetta Tharp, Lockjaw Davis, Ruth Brown, Bill Doggett, and Winoni Harris heard here from 1951 with Big John Greer on sax. Henry Glover had joined Millinder's band in 1945 as a trumpeter. He'd become breakout talent too, but as an arranger, producer, writer, and talent scout. In fact, Greer replaced Bull Moose Jackson with Jackson's solo career taking off due to Glover's songs and production. Jackson is still remembered today for his Glover-produced 1952 song, Big Ten Inch Record. However, a powerful vocalist and saxist himself, Greer quickly stepped into Bull Moose Jackson's role, both as a Lucky Millinder sideman and by releasing his own solo records. For the late 1940s, Big John Greer had a forward-thinking rocking sound, as well as a name for his band, who were called the Rhythm Rockers. 
although Greer's initial bands on his records were actually studio players and his Millinder bandmates. You played on my piano, and now you want to beat my drum. John Greer recorded prolifically, solo and as a sideman, ballads and rockers, instrumentals, and with his booming vocals. He also recorded a succession of duets, including with V. Williams and Demita Joe. He's heard here with Dolores Brown singing, He Played on My Piano, released in 1952. Greer's biggest duet hit was his first, however, a version of I'll Never Be Free with Anastine Allen that hit the top 10 in early 1951. Big John Greer's final solo hit was also his biggest, and with his other chart successes being duets and Lucky Millinder releases, it was actually Greer's only hit under his own name. Got You On My Mind hit number two R&B in early 1952. Jerry Lee Lewis, Joe Tex, Eric Clapton, and Big Joe Turner have all since recorded it. I'm going back to Arkansas. Going home, I trust Ben What's wrong, man? There's too much confusion. What this world's coming to. Through the rest of the mid-1950s, Big John Greer tried to land another hit. He recorded with a couple of vocal groups to mix things up, the Dew Droppers heard here, and the Four Students. And Greer did a holiday single called We Want to See Santa Do the Mambo. And he did a couple simply as John Greer without the big. Conversely, his final RCA sessions were released as by a big boy and his combo. In 1955, Greer was dropped from the label. But again, Henry Glover intervened for Big John Greer. In early 1956, he helped Greer get signed to King Records, where Glover himself had achieved his groundbreaking success. It would be Greer's final record deal, and it didn't last a year. After four releases and no hits, and facing increasing complications from drinking alcohol, Greer was released from his contract. At age 33, Big John Greer left the national music stage and returned to Arkansas. He had recorded for less than eight years total. Can't stand it any longer. But Greer's touristy hometown of Hot Springs had always held music, clubs, and gigs for him. He played locally, including in a jazz trio fronted by Reggie Cravens, although seldom recognized as a local made good. Greer spent his last years in Hot Springs and died May 12, 1972. Big John Greer was 48 years old. With Play Me Some Loud Music, an unreleased track from 1954, Here's Big John Greer of Hot Springs, Arkansas. Music and- 
Play Me Some Loud Music, an unreleased track recorded in August 1954 by Big John Greer of Hot Springs. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansongs. Arkansongs is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merks. Arkansongs, since 1998. First Tee, a nonprofit based in Lowell that provides educational programs for young people, is hosting a holiday toy drive at all Northwest Arkansas locations through December 16th. They are asking for donations of new unwrapped toys. If you'd like more information, First Tee, Northwest Arkansas. The Northwest Arkansas Genealogical Society will meet Monday, November 28th at Bentonville Public Library at 6 p.m. A program will be presented on the Trail of Tears. The public is welcome to attend. For more on that, nwagenealogicalsociety.org. During the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood Sweater Drive, members of the Northwest Arkansas community are being asked to donate new or gently worn sweaters, as well as other cold-weather clothing at the Arkansas PBS headquarters in Conway or at participating libraries throughout the region. This will last through November. Participating libraries include the Pea Ridge Community Library, the Newton County Library in Jasper, the Fayetteville Public Library, and others. Sweaters collected during this drive will be distributed by various local charities. For more information, my arpbs.org. Matthew, I have a quick question for you. Yes. You ever been to Jasper in Newton County? I have been to Jasper. Okay, very good. Yes, this is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Strickler. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Been to Strickler? I haven't. I bet you have. You've probably driven through. Okay. Where we'll is go. it? It's in uh, Washington County. Oh, yeah. I've probably been there. Yeah, you probably have. <laughs> Contributors today included Anna Pope, Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Additional material heard on our show today provided by the news team at KUAR in Little Rock. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Daryl's just-released new album is titled still here. Today's show was produced by Matthew inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. We'll be back tomorrow, and then uh, we're going to have shows throughout the Thanksgiving week. Wednesday, a Thanksgiving quiz. Yes, uh, prepare yourself to, uh, to see how smart I am. Matthew, thanks for being here. Thanks.